Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. This is John Powers, and welcome back, back to Experts Only Podcast. We are actually live at the Empower Conference in Washington, D.C., sponsored by the Clean Energy Leadership Institute. This is the first conference dedicated to young professionals driving change across the clean energy sector. Um, I think this says a lot about CLI's mission as an organization. And for those that don't know CLI, we'll talk more about it today. But it's an organization dedicated to developing and connecting the next generation of diverse clean energy leaders. I've actually known CLI for a long time. Uh, When it was first started here in Washington, uh, it's sort of a guerrilla effort. Uh, They were recruiting folks like myself to come in and engage these fellows in conference rooms around town. And it's great to see this organization really emerge from those sort of grassroots into, I think, the powerhouse it will become. My personal leadership background, uh, I'll tell the story because it's sort of important in the leadership development space. But for those that know me, know I was in the military. I came out of college. I did ROTC at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio and it was an elementary education major. When I was graduating, the best thing about doing ROTC in college is the second half of your senior year, everyone else is looking for a job, and I knew exactly where I was going. So all my friends were going to start jobs at accounting firms and, and wherever else. I was sent to a military unit after about, about four months of schooling and showed up as a 22-year-old uh, elementary education major to lead a group of, four, it was a combat unit, so a group of 40 men, it was all men at the time, um, who most had 15, 17, sometimes 20 years of experience doing what they're doing. And I had been studying rocket science for three months because we were doing uh, artillery, but literally that's all I knew. And so I showed up at my unit and luckily there was a crusty platoon sergeant who'd been there and seen a lot of young officers like me come through. And before I could speak and even introduce myself, he grabbed my lapels and he dragged me around to the side of the motor pool. And he said, look, there's an important lesson you need to learn now. So there's two types of leaders in the military. There's those that lead by rank and there's those that lead by example. So the soldiers are gonna follow those that outrank them because they have to, it's the way the military works. But they wanna follow someone that sets a standard and sets an example. And that stuck with, with me. But also what stuck with me is I spent the next four years in an intense leadership development institute, right? The military is all about that. And you end up be going to combat or going to work in the Pentagon. You know, it's a constant theme and you're constantly looking around and learning. When you leave that though, and get to corporate America, you find out, or even the policy side of, of Washington, it's not a standard thing. People don't have, they may have MBAs, they may have MPAs, right? Uh, they may be really issue experts on topics like development or FERC, but they don't have the leadership development skills they need to run an organization. And there's very few places to get that. I used to run an organization called the Truman National Security Project. The mission of Truman was very similar to the mission of CELI, was developing leaders in the national security space. And the progress we made paid huge dividends when the Obama administration came in because we had fellows who populated the government that had national security backgrounds but also had gone through this leadership development and it paid huge dividends in their careers to folks that went on to be the president's speechwriters, lead major parts of 
Department of Defense, Department of Energy, and, and other spaces. So the mission of CELI is obviously near and dear to my heart, but obviously you all are here in the audience today because it's near and dear to your heart as well. And we want to talk a little bit about the organization, really introduce the new executive director who has a, an amazing background, and, and talk to one of the board members uh, as well about the future of the organization and where it's going. So uh, first, I want to introduce Liz Dalton. Liz has got a very strong background in politics and, and federal public service. Prior to joining CELI, Liz was a former executive appointee in the Obama administration, specializing in energy, climate, and national security at the Department of Energy. So Liz, before talking about CELI and sort of what led you here, personally, what led you into the space of climate and energy and, and public service, for that matter? Thanks, John, and I'm delighted to be here today. Thanks for joining us at Empower. Uh, let me start with the public service aspect, actually. So an undergrad, a political science degree, I was on a track to go to law school. My dad was a lawyer. His dad was a lawyer. It seemed like the natural thing to do. And in my public administration course, I had this fantastic professor. We walked in. Uh, we walked into the class, and this professor said, all of you shithead kids are in here because you want to be lawyers like your daddies. And that offended me for two reasons. One, why couldn't it have been my mom? Um, and two, like, it, it kind of hits you in the face a little bit. And she started talking about what was happening in D.C. at the time. So this is during the Bush administration. And she starts showing all of these slides of the cabinet of members of Congress. And I lovingly refer to that as a 65-year-old white man club. And that's something that you'll, you'll hear me say a couple of times. And folks who know me, I throw that talking point out. Uh, but really struck a chord that she said, if you want to make a difference in the world, ditch the law school plan, you should go to D.C., so I ditched the law school plan uh, at the chagrin of my dad, I'm pretty sure, uh, and, and thought I'd go for two years. But I had this incredible opportunity to work on the Hill for a member from Arkansas. And I really thought I'd go into health policy. It was a time before Obamacare, and it was a lot of need to happen, in the, uh, a lot of change in the policy space that was needed. He was an energy and water appropriator. And like many people outside of this room, don't think about when they flip a light switch where their electricity comes from. And it's something I'd never really thought about. But we kept getting phone calls about a wind production tax credit, which got my, you know, piqued my interest. And then from there, had this incredible opportunity to serve in the Obama administration. And it kind of went from there. I don't know. It was, it was a happenstance in my case, but really developed a passion for it. In your time in the Obama administration, did you see sort of the, the need for leadership development? What was sort of the thing that triggered your interest in the sea line side of this? So when you go into the administration, in my, in my case, I was 20, 25 years old, I think, and had never really been in a leadership position of sorts. And when you're in a, in a political appointee slot, you're not just managing teams and people, but you're really trying to inspire change and, and take what President Obama and folks like John and others in the administration had laid out as uh, the plan, right? And I had no experience in that. And it was a lot of trial by fire. And I would have totally benefited from something like CELI. When I made the transition from um, the GS15 uh, structure, from being a staff member to something they call the senior executive service at the department, they rightfully require you to go through a leadership development training. And if I'm being honest, I was not all that excited about it. I thought it was going to be kind of fluffy, a little bit of waste of time. Wasn't real excited to be taking three days out of the office. But it was a life-changing experience for me. 
Uh, we were talking about how do you motivate others? What motivates people to take action on things? And it was just a way of thinking about my role and my responsibilities that had not been tapped before. And so inspired, in fact, that I ended up getting a master's in leadership development from Georgetown's business school um, nights and weekends in the last two years of the administration because I was really fascinated because you had science. so much time when you were working in the COVID <laughs> night school. <laughs> My husband is not forgiven me for that yeah. still. Uh, many years <laughs> later, he's a patient man. Uh, but really, I did the same thing, by the way. I went to Hank, uh, Johns Hopkins when I was working in the Pentagon. I had to finish my dissertation when I started my White House job. They're like, well, if you stay an extra semester, I'm like, I'm not staying an extra semester. I'm so done with this. Just take this paper and I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> right, got to go. Yeah. Well, but I had this, this interesting opportunity to write a master's thesis that was leadership focused. And obviously near and dear to my heart is climate change and clean energy innovation in that space. So I actually wrote my thesis on uh, the need for cross-sector leadership. Uh, how do we get young folks when they're either coming out of school uh, or still in their in their school time period to think across the public sector, private sector, nonprofit sectors, and start developing those relationships. So my you know tenure run in clean energy plus my master's in leadership development and my thesis, like CLI is that place yeah. in clean energy. Well, they're lucky to have you. Yeah. So next, I want to introduce Thomas Bittinger. Uh, Thomas has got a very strong background in clean energy investing and asset management. Full disclosure, he's a board member at my company, Clean Capital, is how I got to know Thomas. But, you know, Thomas, your background's been focused on finance and entrepreneurship. We're here in Washington where a lot of people focus on policy, right? This, they end up wanting to get into spaces like entrepreneurship and finance till later in their career. But you know, you've gone to uh, get an MBA. You've worked in, at a venture fund. You've worked on boards of, of startups like Clean Capital. Talk a little bit about what your career path was personally and then, you know, what drew you back into the clean energy space? Yeah, thanks, John. So, um I guess going back to business school, I graduated with my MBA with a focus in finance and entrepreneurship, uh, and then immediately went up to Wall Street and worked for an investment bank in New York City for four years. I thought that was kind of the you know career trajectory that I wanted to be on. I saw a lot of dollar signs, a lot of a lot of fun, and you know a hard hardworking, fast paced environment, and so I was kind of attracted to to that side of the world, and I guess. Being there, I started to realize that I kind of wanted something that I was more passionate about at kind of at my core. And so when I started looking at, you know, the clean energy industry and some of the environmental issues that were happening in our world, I just felt like my time and my effort at the end of the day, I was going to feel a lot better about contributing towards something like that rather than uh, what I was doing in investment banking. And so that was kind of the initial thought process and how that evolved over time with eventually moving down and working for a venture fund that was focused on the en environmental and life sciences space, and then eventually my transition over into clean energy um, for the last three or four years now. Um, it's it's really been a, an interesting journey and something that I'm really happy about. This wasn't in my prepared question, so I hope I don't mm -hmm. throw you off on this, but in your the finance space, when you were working on Wall Street, I mean, think about like GE has a really amazing sort of leadership development track. They focus on it. Did you see any of these sort of major institutions in New York have similar type of programs that were about sort of leading the development of those folks who probably come in as a lower level analyst, you know, and spend way too much time in Excel worksheets? They, they actually did have some unbelievable training programs. And that's part of what attracted me to go work for an investment bank like I did straight out of school. I said, like, you can go in and work in this fast-paced environment 
They have great training programs. They spend the time to really, you know, groom their young people. But to your point, a lot of that was not focused on leadership development. And similarly, once I decided that I wanted to get into the clean energy industry, there really was not that kind of training or programming available. And so when I joined the board of CELI a year and a half ago, part of the reason I thought it was such a great organization and worth getting involved with was because it was a personal pain point for me when I was getting into the industry. I said, I, I was in New York City, which you would think would be you know, one of the easiest places in the world to find whatever educational programming or you know, whatever you want, really. And, uh, and really, I, did, I didn't feel like that there, there was anything available for me to you know, get an, kind of an intensive introduction into the clean energy industry on a, on a relatively broad basis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's exciting about the space overall, I mean, the, the, the trends in the marketplace, I mean, look, just look back over the last 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, there barely was a clean energy industry, right? Now it's one of the fastest growing job markets in the space in solar and wind. Uh, you know, there's tremendous amount of capital moving in. Uh, it's matured. From, I heard someone tell the story once about going to the old clean energy, I think Solar Power International, like, I'm not sure that was the conference. He's like, everyone had ponytails. All the guys had ponytails. It's all white guys with ponytails. And then it started turning into people's suits, right? And now you go out there and it's still not super diverse, but it's beginning more diverse, a growing industry. There's a lot happening there. We'll talk about diversity more in a little bit. But the need to really develop the future leadership in that space is the time is now. And that's why I think the mission here at CELI is so important. Let's, just, let's talk about that a little bit, Liz. Like for the people not in the room today, but more the audience, what is CELI? What does CELI do? What sort of the mission, you know, why and why now is it so important for this space? So CELI is dedicated to developing the next generation of clean energy leaders. And this is uh, for us in the, com- uh, the context of climate change. When you are looking at deep decarbonization strategies, we focus heavily on, obviously, clean energy, but we're even starting to expand into things like transportation, uh, things like building to grid integration. And we find that this this generation, the folks in the audience that I'm pointing to and you guys can't see, are motivated not not necessarily in the same way that some of the older folks were. And they're really committed and passionate about this topic. So CELI brings together a community of these emerging leaders, and we run a fellowship training program. So we started in Washington, D.C. in uh, 2013. We've expanded to San Francisco uh, about almost two years ago at this point, and we are now 400 strong in our alumni class. And these folks are working across sectors, um, across topics, folks in energy storage, folks in solar, folks in finance. Um, It really runs the full gamut, but they come together, and they're committed to solving a problem, and basically we enable that. So talk a little bit more about this fellowship program. What, who are the folks that are applying? Uh, what, what is it, if you become a, a fellow, what does that actually mean? And then sort of like, is there sort of a post-fellow life as an alumni? Sure. So the fellowship itself uh, historically has run 14 weeks. We start with uh, fundamentals. What are the fundamentals of grid technology? What are the fundamentals of clean energy finance? How does the system work? If you're going to develop technologies and innovative financing mechanisms, you have to have an understanding of how that all comes together. Um, From there, we move into topics like uh, corporate sustainability and climate change, what's happening in the EV world. And we really do this through expert practitioners in the field coming in and engaging with roughly 35 per cohort 
to, to talk through these issues and do peer-to-peer -peer learning as well. That's one of the things that I don't think uh, folks think about when they think about a fellowship. It's usually a top-down um, type education. And we specifically, we're very careful in how we select our cohorts. We, we intentionally build them to be, you know, 30% policy, 30% finance, 30% uh, technology-driven with STEM, you know, STEM backgrounds and the like, so that they can teach each other. If you have an interest and in, uh, expertise in the policy side, but you have absolutely no idea how markets work, you got to figure that out. You got to learn from each other. And we find that when you come to the fellowship, it's the community that really drives it together. Um, there is a post sea life, you know, yeah. an afterlife. I mean, it's a. <laughs> And uh, it's something that we're actually growing because our yeah. whole model is we get these young folks in a cohort. They develop the relationships. They have a shared set of values. They get a baseline education. But we're banking on in three years, five years, 10 years, they're the ones sitting in the hot seats making these decisions. And we have to keep investing in you. You guys are a long-term investment for us. And they will keep investing back. I mean, we saw this at Truman. People start giving back, getting involved. Talk about what the selection process is like and then, you know, geographically here in the U.S., where is sort of sea light today and sort of where is sea light going? Sure. Or thinking about going. Thinking about going. Okay. So we have uh, fellowship programs running in Washington, D.C. and San Francisco. We have, again, roughly between 60 and 70 fellows per cohort uh, split between the two cities. Uh, this last round, we had over 200 applications. So... Uh, wow. a growing interest, and it's quite competitive. Um, my dear friend, Nate Kinsey, our San Francisco director, I'm sure will not mind me saying this, but it took three times for Nate to get into this program. And thank you for continuing uh, to apply because he's an incredible leader in this space, uh, works in the San Francisco uh, public school systems running their, their energy programs. Uh, but we're looking for folks who are committed to this being their career path. If you come in uh, and you're saying, I'm here for the resume, I'm right. here because I think renewables are cool, or I'm here because I want to, you know, have a startup, but I'm in it for the money. We, you, you tell that in the screening process. We're yeah. looking for people who are here because they care, because they're passionate, and they want this to be their long-term career path. Right. Excellent. And are you obviously? I imagine you. I know you've been there three months, but they've seen the the level increase of the applications over time, and hopefully soon there'll be more geographic or places for people. To, to get involved, but for obvious reasons, San Francisco and D.C., I mean, it was founded here in D.C. San Francisco is a very obvious next space because of the clean energy space. But, you know, you're seeing places all over the country now, Austin, New York, Denver, Buffalo, New York, I'm going to give a shout out to you. It's going to be the next clean energy I hear hub. It's, I hear you it's don't know the, the new Brooklyn. It is the New, new Brooklyn. <laughs> I'm going to trademark that. <laughs> but, you know, the, the need for that leadership development is just as strong in those places. And I think one of the challenges... For Sealight, how do you grow in a way that you can manage it? And for folks that don't know, you know, it's not like Sealight's got a staff of 50 people. It's a mm. staff of one with how many volunteers? Uh, I think we're up to 26 at wow. this point between the two cities. Yeah. So if you're online right now, go and donate to Sealight so they can begin to hire more staff and grow. Yes, um, please. Yeah. But this, uh, to your point, uh, we hope to have reached far beyond uh, San Francisco and Washington, D.C. And this is something that Thomas and I, I'm kind of newbies to the organization have been giving a lot of thought to. So we're thinking about going to places like Chicago, places like New York, Boston, um, Austin, Texas actually keeps coming up in conversation in Denver. Uh, so we're really looking for those strategic partners that will help us grow to these cities, but have a vested interest in developing this next generation. It's good for their bottom line, for recruiting, uh, and really building the clean energy community across public private sectors in the cities where they operate. 
Thomas, as a board member coming into this, you know, you probably have seen a lot of the fellows. Do you have that policy background? You know, what, what sort of drew you to the mission and to want to get involved as, you know, as a board member, it's a pretty active uh, responsibility. So, Yeah, I think initially it was what I talked about a little bit earlier. It was just kind of feeling that that pain point myself when I first tried to get into this industry of not having these kind of resources available to me, at least in the location that I was in at that time. And so that's why, you know, in working with Liz, we kind of think it's so important to try and uh, responsibly scale the CLI program across these additional uh, geographies. How would you compare that experience you're seeing in helping companies like Clean Capital scale, right, to what you're bringing into the CLI boardroom? I actually use that exact analogy with Liz. I, you know, we, uh, so I got involved with CLI as a board member a year and a half ago. I, did, I actually didn't go through the fellowship program, although I might be the first CLI board member to actually apply for a fellow <laughs> position and go. That's just a, a different approach to getting in. <laughs> but I, I use that exact analogy with, with Liz when I first joined and really started, you know, the first six months or so, two board meetings was just getting my arms around what was going on, where the organization was. Um, and where we were going. And then obviously, once we brought uh, Liz on board, it was kind of like, hey, Liz, we're kind of at, you know, if you want to use like a venture capital analogy, we're kind of at like a series A stage with CLI. And, you know, we're going to have all of these fundraising campaigns that we're going for, going out for. And, uh, you know, I think it's a really exciting time, like seeing a small, young organization with a ton of potential. And that's, you know, that's how I look at clean capital. That's how I look at, at some of my businesses. And uh, so I, I think there's, there's a lot of similarities between, you know, what I'm doing in the private space and then also here in the nonprofit space. Yeah, excellent. So this, this is, we're here recording at Empower, and this is the first conference that CLI has put on. You know, as I said in the introduction, Empower is dedicated to young professionals driving change in the clean energy sector. That's right off the website. But more importantly, can you talk a little bit about what is this conference what is it this year? What do you set a hope that it becomes? So at least in my experience and you know, the experience of those in this room, I'm sure, oftentimes when you're going to a clean energy conference or a conference of any kind and you're having a direct engagement with a speaker on stage, it's because you're backbenching your boss. Right. Um, so many of these conferences are uh, hard to afford uh, for young professionals or it's not really targeted to inspiring them for their future development. So we were very careful to craft a program that had a mix of senior executives and emerging stars in this space. And if you'll notice on all the panels, it's, it reflects that. We have young and seasoned, I will not say old, right. seasoned uh, professionals. They know what Cheers is. Yeah, they know what Cheers is. <laughs> for the audience, that's an inside remark. <laughs> But it's, it's not often that you have an opportunity to stand up in front of 200 of your peers and talk about what you're doing and express the passion that you share in this space. So we wanted to create that opportunity. But we found that there's a hunger for getting uh, folks of this generation together beyond the walls of CELI. The fellowship program can only um, have so many, right. and we have way more demand than we can even um, go with. So, yeah. so here we are. And uh, it's so fun to walk out and see 200 folks sitting in a room yeah. rallying around a clean energy future. What a great venue. And so I want to talk a little bit about what's happening in the industry today and you know how to sort of prepare the fellows for that. I mean, there's such, in, Thomas, you see this every day. There's such a growth in the space. Um, you know, I, I wrote a paper once on the um, 
evolution of solar finance and really looked back to 2008 to where it is today. Uh, and solar's become not yet a commodity, but it's a pretty standard space. The number one job sector in in the country last year was solar and solar and wind technicians were the top two growing jobs in the country. You've got major capital moving in the space. You have new technologies emerging like storage, right? Which is, we're sort of seeing storage today as solar maybe in 2009, 2010, but emerging. You're seeing microgrids. Um, you're seeing software companies come in, helping utilities figure out how to manage the overly complex grid that's being developed through distributed generation. You have 50 policy fiefdoms around the country that are really hard to navigate if you're an energy procurer. You've got companies like Apple and Walmart and eBay going 100% renewable energy, which is mind-boggling to think 10 years ago that wasn't even possible, right? People didn't even know how to spell PPA 10 years ago, right? And now you've got entire, this is totally true, you've got entire companies dedicating their energy, their energy strategy on using these procurement mechanisms and building energy procurement offices within tech companies. You know, Apple's got an energy procurement office, right? That was unheard of 10 years ago. The market's growing. So how do you prepare these young leaders for that, those constant changes? And, you know, sort of how do you develop a curriculum to prepare them for that constant evolution? This is something that we've been chatting quite a bit about. Uh, I think historically our programs have, have focused on what's happening right now. But when for folks in this room, 10 years ago, you were in high school, you were in, in you know, early undergrad. That hurts. Uh, it really does. Uh, but, but I don't know that they have an appreciation for how far we've come in such a short amount of time. Right. And so we are looking, and, and I'll make a call for experts in the field uh, to come join us as we, uh, I think, refresh our curriculum is how I would say that. But we're going to start with some basics. What is the system as it was? Where is it today? Because that informs where you're going next. And right. so understanding oil and gas, understanding what happens as we transition to a distributed energy system. But to your point, these weren't things that were even being talked about. But this new generation comes in, and they're so excited about this changing, quick change technology. And some yeah. of that is, I don't know, like pace setting a little bit. But to say, here's the broader context that this has been operating in. And now we're going to drive it even further. It, you, you can't play in clean energy today without thinking about things like the Internet of Things and the interaction that that's going to have with what we're doing, with water, with agriculture. All these industries are beginning to yep. really blend together, which is exciting. So I want to get to the audience here in a, in a few minutes for questions. But before doing that, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the diversity of the industry. Because you, you mentioned this earlier, um, you know, it's, it is a, you know, it's a relatively older white male industry. It used to be a very ponytail-heavy industry, I guess. I wasn't around then, but less ponytails, more suits. But, you know, I was at Solar Power International in Anaheim a couple of weeks ago. Diverse, it's growing. You're seeing more women, a lot of veterans, which is ex exciting and often not counted as a, as a, uh, as a, as a group, but is a, is a really growing, growing group in clean energy. But still, diversity is not there yet. I mean, even looking at, and I'm just going to pull some numbers out here, you know, 2017, um, the U.S. Energy Employment published a, a DOE report with energy-related re sectors are relatively, they're relatively less diverse compared to the overall national workforce. The Solar Foundation has done amazing work in this space, by the way. Uh, so you should ch definitely check out their, uh, their reports. They actually are in the midst of doing a survey right now. They survey the industry. They capture that data. Uh, but they've learned, you know, 
Just as last fall, women and people of color are less likely to earn executive level wages compared to white men in the industry. Um, there continues to be sort of inequity in the space. And you know, how do we address that? And how do we empower more uh, diverse leaders to sort of move ahead in the industry? Uh, a couple of points I'd like to make, and, and the pay equity uh, issue at the top of my head, you think about uh, the CEO of Sunrun coming out and making uh, statements that we, there will be equal pay for, for all employees. So in some ways, that starts at the top. You have to have uh, senior leaders who are invested in driving this change. Um, at the same time, preparing folks for you know their, their own development and learning to advocate for themselves is a big piece of what we talk about with CELI and our fellows as part of our leadership development training. But you're, but you're right. Uh, at least when I started in the industry, again, my 65-year-old white man uh, quote, I was one of few women working in nuclear that wasn't, uh, I think they were still calling them secretaries, actually, when I, wow. when I started. Um, and it's Wait, been, this is like recently? Yeah, yeah, it's not that long ago. Wow. Yeah, uh, nuclear. It's <laughs> changing. Linka Kohler from New Scale speaking uh, right now. Glad to have her. Um, but, I, you know, there's going to have to be a change in the space. And the decision makers are going to have to reflect the communities that they represent. And that's right. one of our, our clear missions with CELI. Uh, we have a, you know, a, a large focus on diversity inclusion, and it's how we recruit. It's part of our selections considerations. We want to have and we want to ensure that we are going through a process thoughtfully and intentionally to make sure that we're bringing those uh, those folks to the table. And one of my uh, volunteers, Hannah from, from Sunrun, and I talk about this. It's not just about being in the room. It's actually being at the table and driving this change. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So I'm going to come back to the audience in one second. So if you have questions, raise your hand. They'll bring you a microphone. Please speak into the mic. But, but Thomas, from being in boardrooms and being on the investor side of this, why is that diversity important in sort of corporate decision making? Well, I think from my perspective, I think with with my business, it's we're probably, you know, as equally guilty of this as anybody else in this industry. And it really is something that you can just see diversity as an issue in in not only in our industry, but in many other industries as well. Um, just going to the conferences and meeting with different companies, you kind of see that the executive level team tends to be predominantly white males. And, you know, with, with my father as the CEO of, of my business, he's actually a 63-year-old white male, so he fits pretty, pretty well within what you're talking about there, Liz. But, you know, I, I think it's an intentional decision that every company has to make from the get-go. And not to say that it can't happen down the road, but even when I look internally at our organization, you know, we have Teresa Schaefer, who's our head of asset management. So shout out to Teresa at Bay 4. She's unbelievable, unbelievable, and she's built a great team of young women underneath her who have turned into unbelievable leaders in our organization in their own respect. But then you look at— Can you tell Teresa's story for a second? Because Teresa is a person that when you meet her is very unassuming, but she's amazing at what she does. And she really started at a very junior level, right? She did. She was probably at one point her title was probably secretary at a, at a previous organization going back. 20 years or so. And now, you know, fast forward, she just methodically worked her way up through really nothing other than, than hard work and, and diligence. And, uh, and now she's our, our VP of asset management running that entire group with 20 or so people working underneath her. So yeah, she's, she's done a great job for us. Um, and I, and I think it's just a great example of, 
of what can happen when you have a woman in a leadership position like that and then how that uh, just kind of feeds into the organization below her. And then what I was going to say earlier about, you know, then you look at the project development side of our business and that really was not a focus and we didn't have a Teresa involved in that organization. I think people are very comfortable working with and working in environments and with other people that they're familiar with and comfortable with. And so if you don't, if you don't make that decision from the get go to kind of have that diversity included in your organization, then it's going to end up looking very similar to, you know, whatever it looks like in in the very beginning. Right. Well, and let me add on to that, that our partners, CUI's partners, the folks who are investing in us currently also see that diversity and inclusion has to be part of the conversation. And they come to CUI, A, we have a, a, I can't even tell you how talented these fellows are, but you have a 400 strong alumni base of folks that have this broad understanding, but they also understand that we have a diverse pool to pull from and they are heavily invested in making those intentional investments. So if I was an employer wanting to hire a C-Life fellow, right? Do you guys have like a internal list flow that, you know, people are sending resumes to, or is that something, is there like a monster.com for C-Life fellows? Monster. You're aging yourself. No, sorry. Yeah, this is great. Uh, yeah, we've actually just this year launched. Is there an Apple IIe out there somewhere we can use? <laughs> we, we've just this semester launched uh, an online platform called HiveBright where we have <laughs> the opportunity to post jobs. And I would say all of the sea lions, as we call them, uh, lovingly call them, the sea lion community uh, share those jobs and post those jobs and are happy to advocate for others in that space. But yes, our sponsors actively post positions and we circulate them and flag the, the sea lion fellows. Great. So I'm going to open up to questions in the audience. Are there any? All right, we got one up here, and please use the mic. Thank you for doing the podcast. I really enjoyed hearing both all of yours backgrounds and a little bit more about CLI. As we're talking about diversity and leadership development, as more as we get more diverse and inclusive leadership, have you guys seen a shift in how formal leadership development programs have changed their focus and how they teach leadership um, to adapt to more leadership styles? I think it'll continue to evolve, but we're seeing it in CLI already. Um, things that, again, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Hannah on our crew. Uh, we talked about developing LGBTQ allyship as part of our development training. This is not something, I think for me inherently, that is what we should be doing. But you just assume, um, unfortunately, you assume that everyone thinks the same way that you do, that we should be inclusive. But this is stuff that we are starting to incorporate on the front end of our development training. You know, it's an interesting question, and I don't have a great answer for you other than it'll continue to evolve. It has to evolve, and we we learn as we go, and we're always looking for feedback in that space. I'll tell you, so as at Clean Capital, one of the things we try to do, and, and you know, a lot of this is, it's got to be driven by the individual. So I, you know, uh, we've got a, a Zoe Berkery, who I think was a CLI fellow, was Zoe, yeah, who works for me. She's ama- She worked for me at the White House. She's an amazing person who's just doing incredible work. You know, she came to me very early on at Clean Capital and said, look, there is this great organization called We Rise. I'd like to get involved. Uh, you know, they're helping train women to do, do more in the space. She does a lot of stuff in New York that's oriented towards empowering women and developing their leadership skills. And she just made the asks, right? And we're, I'm all for that. I just didn't know that was out there, right? So you've got to sort of take ownership of your career from that perspective. And I think you'll find a very... As a 40-year-old white male, I'm not 60 yet, thank God, even though I probably reference stuff 60-year-olds reference um, I'm hearing today. You know, 
just make the ask. Because I think we all, from a leadership perspective, we want to empower those working for us. And you just got to be willing to take your career by the horns and make those asks. And honestly, if you're working at a place that they don't want to support that kind of stuff, you should probably look for another job. Because there's, you want to be at a place that wants to empower you as a person uh, and as a leader. And I think your generation overall is even more empowered than, by that than many, many previous ones have been. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, so we're talking a lot about kind of obviously CLI is for young professionals, and that's kind of the target audience. But, you know, even when you're, when you're looking at the funnel of people who enter the clean energy space, like a lot of that, you know, we were talking, Julia Hamm was talking about how she got into environmental and like how she did that. And just like looking, looking at the kind of funnel of going into clean energy, you know, using CLI as a platform, what, what are your thoughts on how potentially with this broad alumni group and this broad uh, network, can you reach people who don't even think about clean energy, both because, you know, they're from environments like low-income families who <laughs> don't really think about the environment and have never thought about that? Or even we talked about this too, like, you know, you have the big cities, but like uh, my company's headquartered in Salt Lake City and they have no opportunities for professional development out there. Um, so just kind of have you had any thoughts about how, how to reach those kind of people? Before you reference Eli for a second. So I'm on the, the board of a group called Grid Alternatives, which is doing a lot of work for folks that don't know amazing work in um, sort of low-income communities helping to exa do exactly that. Introduce them to the opportunities in clean energy and not just put solar panels on their roof, but train them to be that future workforce. And, you know, it's had wild success. I'd say that it's not that people in low-income homes don't think about the environment. It's just that they haven't been introduced to the fact that there's actually a career opportunity here and that, that there are people that look like them that are doing this work and they're having trouble keeping their folks on staff because they're getting hired away so quickly because they're, they're, it's such a growing, exciting space. But I would challenge to the fellows out there that you need to take an active role in your community and help bring some of that education that you've had and that leadership you had back to the community. And then I'll turn it to Liz. Thank you, Cecilio. And I'm glad you mentioned Grid Alternatives. They're one of the partners with us on this Empower Conference. And I think of the CLI community as a community of service. And tomorrow morning, we will be volunteering with the organization from 8 to noon doing job application training uh, oh, awesome. as part of this. Uh, to, the, to the student question, to the funnel question, as CLI expands geographically, we're also looking to expand somewhat programmatically. And there is a natural pipeline that we're creating through the fellowship program. As you enter the alumni, the post-CLI alumni phase of life, um, to John's point, it's, it's an opportunity for you to give back to the communities that you came from. And we partner with universities now. I think that in future years, there's also opportunities for our fellows to engage in the community. So we do things um, like boot camps, uh, Clean Energy 101 boot camps. We've partnered with Georgetown, November 3rd, DC register, um, and also deep decarbonization uh, in San Francisco on November 3rd as well, but really creating that opportunity for our alumni to go back and teach. So Liz, let's talk for a second about the future of CLI. Now that you've been on the job all of three months, and you obviously I've taken got it the all reins. figured yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. You've got you've you've pulled off a, a masterful conference. Where where is the direction of CLI heading? You know, we're going to come back a year from now at the Empower Conference, wherever that's going to be. And you may want to do a pitch if it's not out there already. You know, what is what what's CLI going to look like? Uh, Thomas and I will battle it out with our other board members to see where Empower goes next. Uh, but I would imagine San Francisco, maybe D.C. again, or maybe one of our future communities that we're looking to expand to. But we hope to be an additional in an additional three cities in the next three years. 
that's a heavy lift for us uh, in this next year, looking for fundraising and community building in the cities that we want to move to. But that'll be the kind of next thing on the horizon. And we're shaking up the fellowship program a little bit. We've run uh, shorter sessions twice a year. We're going to be moving to a one cycle, uh, one year cycle to have a deeper experience for our fellows. It'll run probably on the order of 20 weeks because there's such a hunger for uh, a broader education outside of the traditional clean energy bounds. We talked a little bit about things like SB 100 and economy-wide decarbonization, you're going to have to be knowledgeable about things outside of what happens in the electricity system. So it's it's an opportunity for us to build out the programming. Um, it's an opportunity for us to go to other cities. And any of you listening who want to get involved, uh, please reach out. We are looking for for ideas and help shape the future of CLA. So what, what tools should they reach out through if they want to apply, if they want to be, if they're, if they're a leader in the industry already uh, and they want to give back, like how do they get involved? Our website is cleanenergyleaders.org, and we have a tab actually called Get Involved. It's pretty straightforward. You click the button. Um, it sends a note to me. I'm very excited to, to receive all these inquiries. Um, and I guess I should also say for our spring fellowship, if you're an emerging leader and you want to get involved, we'll be opening our spring 2019 applications uh, later this year, probably the end of November. And the best way to do uh, to keep up to date is to sign up for our newsletter on the website. I'll tell you a great place to host a conference next year is Buffalo, New York. It's incredible. <laughs> the Brooklyn, the new yeah, Brooklyn. The new Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, a lot happening there in clean energy. So finally, I, I always ask the same final question for, for folks that haven't listened to Experts Only. What we do at Experts Only is focus on the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. And unlike a lot of the other podcasts that are out there that are panel conversations about the market or focus in a specific industry, we try to focus on industry leaders and what they're seeing, but also how do they even get in that role? As many folks you talk to, I mean, I was an elementary education major. Liz talked about working in healthcare before. Thomas was a venture capitalist. You know, how did you end up doing what you're doing today? So we want to give advice back to folks that are thinking about the industry. As you said earlier, a lot of this audience may have been in high school 10 years ago. But for the kid that is in high school or about to graduate college, or if you were going back to yourself as you going to sit down and have coffee with that with that earlier version of you, what advice would you give? The high school version of me was quite scary. Yeah. Um, <laughs> don't be afraid to take chances. Um, there is not, I get asked the question, like, what is the path? There isn't a path. And the sooner you recognize that and embrace that your career will meander, it's, it's an opportunity. It's not a challenge and just embrace and be open to that. And then the advice that I give to all of our fellows, and I will not say the cuss word, but like, don't be a jerk. It's really about, like, so much of this is about people and being kind to people and understanding um, that we're all human beings, we're sharing this planet, and not everything has to be a fight. And just because you're right doesn't mean someone else is wrong. If right. I can leave you with any words, those are the ones. I would say just get in there and and try different things. I think if you're looking at at how you want to get into this industry and you're, you know, sitting there looking at dif- different job descriptions online or whatever, it's... It's like figure out what you can do today to just jump in and get involved in something, whether that's like a short-term internship or, or, or taking a role that you actually aren't that excited about. It's like one of the, one of the ways you're really going to get your foot in the door and learn what you like and what you don't like and where you want to go next is by getting in somewhere and actually, actually doing something. So I think that's, that's yeah. kind of my advice. I'd agree with you, Liz. There's zero path. My wife calls it the roller coaster. Mm-hmm. You got to ride the roller coaster to figure out where you, you want to end up. I feel like, especially here in Washington, but overall, people don't look enough for mentors, 
find mentors, get to know them. People who emerge in the industry want, do want to give back. Uh, you don't need to go asking them for a job, ask them for advice. You know, when you sit down with someone and be like, I want to find a new job, like it's really hard to have that conversation back because I don't know what you're looking for, right? If you can go back and be like, I'm really interested in clean energy, but I don't really know really what business development is. I don't know what this is. Like they'll help you understand that space better. I've had amazing mentors throughout my career. And then once you're in the position to be a mentor, do it. Have those coffees. Don't overlook the fact that you should be part of your leadership responsibility to give back. So I'm going to, first of all, thank our audience and, and thank our speakers today. And for those uh, listening to get more episodes of Experts Only, please go to Clean Capital's website, uh, clean, cleancapital.com. Look forward to f- continuing our conversation. Uh, and please go and learn more about CLI. Hit that Get Involved tab and help spread the word about what's going on here in terms of leadership development. I'd like to thank our producers at, at the podcast, uh, Lauren Glickman and Emily Connor, for their continuous hard work. And uh, as always, look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.